All right, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. Now, I know it's Wednesday night. And so I'm going to try to modify this a little bit. I know we ended on Sunday in uh, verses, pretty much between verses 14 and 19, which is a very complicated section. I'm not going to try to go back and see what you remember. But Jeremiah 2, 14 through 19, I will read it. Just briefly mention a couple of things. We may return back to it on Sunday since we kind of left just, I mean, I think we did a pretty good job with the section. We at least clearly demonstrated the complexities here. Who is talking? Is it, you know, all the different things that we, we brought up in regards uh, to, to this. We say, uh, I'll just read it. Jeremiah 2, 14 through 19. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him. And yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Noth and Tehaphanes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, and that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, which he led thee by the way? And now why hast thou, what hast thou to do uh, in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor, Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. So we looked at the six questions. That are presented there. Is Israel a servant? Is Israel a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Have you not brought this on yourself? What will you get going to Egypt? And what will you get going to Assyria? We then discussed a little bit about who is asking these questions. Some believe the speaker is evidently the prophet, who, based off everything else he sees, he has these questions. Others believe it's God. We, we, we talked a lot about there. How do we understand the questions? We, we, we spent a little bit of time working on that. How do we understand the time, past, present, future? We dealt with all of those issues. And then what we really had to get into is really trying to understand kind of some of the language, right? Because, again, if you go back to Jeremiah 2, you'll notice in verse, uh, see, where is it? Verse 15. The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Well, who are the young lions, right? We talked, well, we'd have to figure out who the young lions are. Then also the children of Noth and Tehaphanes. Who are the children of Noth and Tehaphanes? Um, then we read, uh, and ha- have broken the crown of thy head. We believe that's Judah, and then we got to get into when, where, how, when did that occur? Um, Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, and that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? What do the waters of Sihor represent? Um, And uh, to drink the waters of the river, right down uh, when it talks about Assyria. What does the waters represent? What is that dealing with? 
So we, we could spend con- some considerable time working on basically the lions, the children, and the waters, trying to figure out exactly what they mean and how we understand it. The main thing I want you to take from it for right now is just once again to demonstrate you just reading your Bible and you see this stuff. Everyone tries to talk about the clarity of Scripture. Nobody's going to have a clue. Nobody's going to have a clue. So then everyone does what? The pastors may stand behind the pulpit and preach it with such authority and, a sh- and you know, like they, that they know for sure what it means, right? Hey, I'm, they're going to speak it authoritatively, like it's clear, but the reality is everyone's going to do what to figure it out? Well, they're going to go grab a commentary and then you find, and just, just so that we remember how church works. This is how church works, right? You declare which team you're on, Right? In other words, this is the theology we hold to in this church. Then when you're studying the Bible, what do you do? Go to the commentaries that are marked your team. Then you simply preach what your team already agrees on, and then everyone says, amen. And do not deviate, because if you deviate, someone's going to get mad, someone's going to get upset, you have to make sure you do it that way. Or someone, and it's just to me, it's all kind of a facade and a game that we're really pursuing truth and digging into scripture when all we're really doing is saying our team is right and every team is wrong and, and preach it as if I spent 14 hours in study. Yeah, studying things that already agree with us, right? It, whole thing drives me crazy. But the bottom line is, The average person sitting in the pew reading that, are they going to have a clue? No clue. And then what we've already seen is once we start trying to figure some of this out, what did we we quickly discover? There were not even all the commentaries agree, right? Not even all the commentaries agree. So we got to like, who's speaking? When did this happen? Who is this referencing? But just briefly, just so that you know, typically the young lions reference, uh, what, what do most people think? Remember. The Assyrians, okay. Some commentaries said the Assyrians, the Syrians, and the Babylonians. But the Assyrians... And the children of Naph and Tehaphanes is Egypt. Egypt, okay? And then drinking of the water deals with rivers associated with Egypt and Assyria, okay? So that, that's kind of the basic idea. So if we look at it that way, if we just look at it from a general standpoint, I don't want to get too much into it tonight on a Wednesday when, you know, most people are not here. So I'm just going to try to just, I don't, you know, I want to come back to it in more depth. But re- just remember, the whole goal is to get through the entire book of Jeremiah before the summer. So obviously I can't unpack every little thing. So just briefly, here's what I want you to do. Just briefly, okay? This is our first quick assignment tonight, and then we have one big assignment to try to complete. All right, so everyone paying attention? I want us to look at this section because this is a good example of a section where trying to figure it all out. Who's speaking? Is this past, present, future? It leads to, like, a never-ending amount of questions. Can we agree on that? Okay, and then not only that, it can lead to a lot of confusion, yes? So what we want to do is step way back and just look at the section and go 
from a basic general understanding, what is the basic lesson, what is the basic idea being put forth, even if we don't understand all the little individual parts. All right, so let's read it again and see if we can catch on to the basic idea, all right? Clearly, we know, if we read everything in Jeremiah 2, that something has dramatically changed between Judah and God. Can we agree with that? Right? How do we know this? Because he starts at the beginning by doing what? Guys, I remember when you used to like me. I remember when you used to love me like a brand new bride. I remember when you used to follow me. Right? Do you remember all of those things? I remember when you were the first fruits. I remember when you were holiness to the Lord. I remember um, how I protected you. Then look at verse 4. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of uh, Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain. All right. So immediately we're, we get an idea. Something dramatically has changed. So, we, so now anyone reading Jeremiah 2, the average person can figure this out. Something has happened and Judah, in a sense, has done what? Their previous relationship with God has dramatically changed. And now instead of pursuing God, they are doing what? According to the last verse I just read. They have forsaken him. Right? And they are doing what? They, they've gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. They have walked, uh, walked away from me and they're pursuing that which is vanity. Now that's a simple lesson. Now, we, now I've had a number of people email me because this is one of the assignments I gave people to work on in the podcast was what does it mean to walk after vanity? And uh, nobody can seem to come to a clear agreement. Everyone, everyone acknowledges, I don't know, like, if I, if I do these three activities, is that not walking after vanity? Well, if I do this. And so nobody can really say for sure, right? Nobody can say for sure. And if you say, well, it means to walk after an idol. Well, then what is an idol? Anything we put before? What do we put before God. Just about everything. So, so nobody can really articulate it. But clearly in this situation, they're guilty. So we want to apply it to ourselves, but we can all admit, I don't know how you, I don't know exactly, you know, the, the typical ways of preaching this would be like, okay, how much time do you spend reading your Bible? How much time do you spend studying your Bible? How much time do you spend praying? How much time do you spend ministering to others? How much time do you go to church? And then you kind of, and then you measure it up and go, if I spend more time doing this than this, then guess what? I'm not walking after vanity. But the reality is whenever you do that, does anyone pass that test? No, everyone fails the test. But then everyone still passes themselves and go, I'm not walking after vanity. So then the whole thing just seems like a big game to me, right? But we know something has definitely changed. Verse 6, neither said, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadows of death, through a land, uh, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. So not only are they go- going after vanity, they basically have stopped doing what? Not only have they pursued that which is vain, what else have they done? I, I just read it. 
they, they stopped asking where God is. They stopped, they stopped focusing. They weren't even asking where God was. Remember verse 6? Neither said they, where is the Lord? Neither said they, where is the Lord, right? They stopped asking where God is. Remember, we talked, we talked about this in great detail. Verse 7, and I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my, uh, my heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the Lord knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that, walked after things that do not profit, right? The things that do not profit. So once again, what happened? They started walking after that which was vain. They just basically forgot God. They weren't saying, where's God? They weren't worried about where God was. They were worried about other things, right? And, not, and who forgot about God? The people and the religious leaders. And they all were walking after things that do not profit. Are we getting a clear idea of what's going on? Right? Now, this is important. Just, just a hermeneutical lesson. This is a hermeneutical lesson. Everybody paying attention? Hermeneutical lesson. When you find something in a chapter that is almost like you don't know what in the world's going on and you're like, wait, we got lions, we got water, we got children, we got what is hat, we got six questions, we don't know who's asking the question, we don't know if it's past tense, present tense, future, future tense, we don't know what's going on, always stop and do what? Retreat back to what is as clear as clear can be in the chapter. What we have a tendency to do is when we get into the sections that are very unclear, what do we have a tendency to do? Either one, this is, I think a lot of people in the pew do this. They just skip it as if it doesn't matter. I have no idea how human beings can do that, but they do. Others of us like me will be like, I got to figure this out, right? I am going to figure this out. I'm not going to sleep for the next 17 years until I can figure this out. But then guess what? In both cases, there's a mistake being made. The people who skip it, well, they'd obviously, I mean, that, that, I mean I'm, with, I'm trying to be nice. I mean, you obviously don't care what God's word has to say if you skip it, because I mean, it's God's word. You, you should have to care. But if you get so preoccupied by it, you can miss what is clear. Like you've got these clear lessons. Like to me, what I should be trying to figure out first and foremost, what does it mean to walk after that which is vain? What does it mean to just forget asking where God is? And what does it mean to go after things that do not profit? Because that's very practical. So I need to figure that out. But what will happen is I can get so caught up in trying to figure out these other things that I'm like, okay, I've got 10 different possible interpretations. There's this, there's this one, it could be this, and it becomes an academic puzzle in which to put together. And then you solve the academic puzzle and you're like, I'm smarter than everyone else. That's of no spiritual value either. Skipping it is of no spiritual value. I mean, in fact, it's disrespect to the word. And getting so preoccupied with trying to figure it out can be, in a sense, not spiritually profitable because you're maybe missing what is clear. So you always have to pull back in what is clear. We, we know what is clear up to this point, yes? All right, then verse nine, wherefore I will yet plead with you, right? We know that that doesn't mean plead like beg. It means I'm going to lay out my, my charges with you, saith the Lord. And with your children's children will I plead or lay out my charges. Then he says, for Passover the Isles of Chittim, 
see and send unto Kadar, and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. So once again, there's the charge. You have God. You have the, the glory of the true God. And what have they done? They've exchanged it for that which does not profit. Are we seeing a theme here? Is the theme clear? The theme is clear, right? They have abandoned God and they're pursuing that which is vain and that which is of no profit. Every one of us should be convicted by that and at least try to figure out what in the world that means to our lives, right? Verse 11, hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. All right? Then we come to 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now that to me is a, a that's a summary of really the things that come before, Right? If you exchange the true God for that which isn't a God, no way you've forsaken him and you've now digging something that is broken because it's not going to hold anything because it is vain and it has no profit. So in a roundabout way, this summarizes everything that comes before, yes? I know when we went through it, I separated it a little bit, but I, now I'll just, I'll just put it together for simplicity's sake. When you forsake God and you're out there digging a well that is broken, that can hold no water, you're doing that which is vain, you're pursuing that which is of no profit, and you're exchanging glory for that which is of no profit. Right? Now, from that, here comes the questions. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? Now, I believe both questions are asked like, Wait, is Israel just a, a servant? Is Israel just a slave? And the, I think the answer is supposed to be, no, no. They, they are God's chosen. They are, they are a son. They are, they're, the, the, in a sense, the apple of God's eye. So then why are they being spoiled? In other words, why are they being what? The NIV doesn't use the word spoiled. It uses plundered, right? 14? Plunder, right? Well, so in other words, they're being, why are they being plundered? Why, why, in other words, why are these nations coming in and just taking everything from them? Because you start off at the earlier part of the chapter and God's there protecting them, right? So like, what has happened to them? Then the next is the young lions roared upon him and yelled and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Now, let me make it very clear. Listen to me carefully. Even if you don't know who the young lions are, can you understand that? Israel, you're not a servant, you're not a slave. So why are all these people, why are you being plundered? How are they being plundered? By young lions who are doing what? Well, look at the verse. 
They've laid waste the land. Why is your land being laid? That's what plundered means, right? Right? Why is the land being laid? In other words, you don't even have to understand. Wait a minute. Is that Assyria? Is that Babylon? Is that Syria? That is a worthy thing to study. But you can get so trying to figure out who the young lions are that you forget, well, wait a minute. This shows Israel going from this position of honor to now this position of being plundered. What happened to them? Next verse. Yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah, you're you're being basically treated as a slave, right? But you're not a slave. Why is this happening to you? Right. So like we should be able to figure that. That's what I want you to just see is we can gain the main idea, right? Because we can get tr- we can get sidetracked. Next verse. Also, the children of Noph and Tehaphanes have broken the crown of thy head. Even if you have no clue, Noph or Tehaphanes, I keep saying Tehaphanes, Tehaphanes, even though you have no clue who these children are, what, they, what they're connected with, if you have no clue what, what has happened, broken the crown of thy head. In other words, whatever you want to reference the crown, like you can, I would say a king, but but even if you just say something bad has happened that other nations or, or someone, you don't even have to say nations, someone is doing something to them where, as Sarah just said, they're being treated just like a common slave or servant. They're not being treated with, they're, they're losing any glory or honor, as the previous section would say. What's next? Has thou not procured this unto thyself? In other words, I may not understand everything that happened to him, but I can know this. The question is, did you not bring this on yourself? They are to blame for it. Now, why are they to blame for it? They have forsaken Lord. They have, they have walked after that which is vain. They've pursued that which is of no profit. They've exchanged glory for that which does not profit. They have forsaken God and done what? Dug wells that are broken that cannot contain water. Right? Do you, you get all of the basic ideas? All right, then we not, may not be able to understand the next part, but verse 18 and 19, you may, or at least 18, you may get some idea, right? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Now, that may give you an idea uh, that clearly Assyria and Egypt are being talked about in this section, so that may give you some help with the young lions and the children. But what's the issue? Now, please note, they're drinking the waters of. Remember previously in the chapter, they've forsaken the fountain of living water. So in other words, instead of turning to God, they're turning to earthly powers for, per se, the waters that they could get from them. They're not turning to God, they're turning to this. And, and the question is, what are you, what are, why are you going there? All right, now, all of that. So, you see, we may not understand all the details, we can at least gather that. All I want you to see is, by no means should we ever skip it. We should always pursue as much knowledge as we can gain from it. But in pursuing the knowledge of it, Always take a step back, take a deep breath, and go, okay, what can I clearly see in it? If we can establish what can be clearly gained from it, 
Then we seek the spiritual benefit that we gain from what is clear, while then we still pursue the difficult. You can't skip it. That's just to me not, that's not even acceptable. And you can't so ignore what is clear so that you can win an academic test. You have to gain what God is clearly saying so you can gain the spiritual benefit as you pursue the benefit of the knowledge that comes from it. But then here is what we're going to focus on the rest of this evening. All right? Verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Write down the word backslide or backsliding, whichever way you want to word it. Backslide, backsliding. Now, if you've been in church in any length of time, well, I don't know how common the term is used in today. When I became, first became a Christian in the 80s and especially in the 90s, there was lots of talking about backsliding, backsliding, backsliding. Back. There were books written about it and lots of sermons. I don't, I don't feel, now this may not be an accurate representation, I don't feel like there's a lot of talk about backsliding. And personally, this is my own, this is my own interpretation of church history. I believe a theological change happened. All right? We all know in the 80s, a certain book was written. I tell everyone a million times in this church to read it. The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. Now, that book had a profound impact on evangelical Christianity because it introduced what later became known as what? Lordship salvation. Now, in Lordship salvation... How does lordship salvation work? If you don't do this, 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 then you were never saved. So take that concept and now match it with the word backslider. You're not a backslider. You're now what? Lost. Because typically a backslider is understood not to be someone who is lost, but to be someone who is simply what? Sliding backwards spiritually, and your job is to try to challenge them so that they'll move forward. If you, if you create a theology that basically says anyone who's backslidden is not saved, well then you don't call them backsliders anymore, you call them unregenerate. That's what I believe is a, is, is a fundamental change. Because when I remember hearing about backsliding a lot in the, when I first became a Christian, like at that period in my life, sometimes during prayer at First Baptist Church Tuscola, pray for so-and-so, they're backslidden. The, 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 the term is not even almost used. At least that's my, not, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe it's used all over the place, but I just feel like it fell out of, Style. Well, I can understand when I became, uh, when I started holding the Lordship Salvation, I, mean, I didn't know what it was called, Lordship of the Salvation at the time. I thought it was called Christianity because I didn't know any better. I was a brand new Christian. But I would just basically forget backsliders. They're just not saved. All right? So 
But this is interesting. When you come to the book of Jeremiah, the word is used right there, right? This is very interesting. Listen to this. Backsliding is an Old Testament word used only by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. And guess who uses it the most? Jeremiah. So this is what we're going to try to do. I gave everyone this assignment. Uh, I've got uh, some people already turned in their assignment, but we're going to just work on the the word backsliding or backsliders and the book of Jeremiah alone. So if you want to look them up, you can look up backsliding, backslider, um, all the different variations and see how many times it's used in the book of Jeremiah. According to this commentary, the word backsliding is used seven times in Jeremiah chapter 3 alone. All right? Now, I don't know if it, depending on, we're probably going to have some translation issues. Someone sent me their homework, and they give me backsliders in Jeremiah, Nave's topical Bible, and they give me every reference as used in Nave's topical Bible. Now, when you say topical Bible, remember exactly what that means, right? If it's a topical Bible... Means they may show me the concept, but the word may not be used. So we we may we'll, we may follow their what they've given us, but we're just going to try to determine what is backsliding in the according to the book of Jeremiah, not according to a pastor, not according to any, but according to the book of Jeremiah. How many uh, how many references do you, did you find, Sarah, and what you looked up? I don't know what tool you're using. Okay, you got 13 times in 12 verses. Okay, that's using more than Jeremiah or just Jeremiah? Okay, more than Jeremiah. That's probably Isaiah and Hosea. Probably. Okay, next. Okay, backsliding nine and Jeremiah. Okay, so we're going to work through all of them. But before we do that, grab a Bible dictionary really quick and see if you find an entry for backslide, backsliding, or anything close to it. Let's see what we can find. It's on page 152 if you need it. Yeah, one short paragraph. Now, why I find it interesting is, see, I remember these debates early on in my Christian life, right? Early on in my Christian life, I was trying to figure out well, when it, were you a backslider and when are you not saved? Because the influence of MacArthur was playing on me, right? Because then I started like, you're not backsliding, you're lost, right? Because that's, that's the way it works. So it's just funny that there's only like one short paragraph in the Bible dictionary where you could be writing like books on trying to figure out how this all works. But here we go. Backslide. To revert to sin or wrongdoing. To lapse morally or in the practice of religion. Backsliding is a term found mainly in the book of Jeremiah. It refers to the lapse of the nation of Israel into paganism and idolatry. All right, now, before we dig into this, we understand the theological 
debate that the term leads to, right? Everybody understand the theological debate that will arise in studying this word? Right, because that's immediately what it's going to go to, right? Okay, Bobby backslides and returns to paganism. How many people would say he's saved? Probably zero. How, so, so the question always comes down to this. How far can someone backslide? Yeah, how far and still be saved? Do you see how subjective that is? Very subjective, right? right? How far back can you go? And, and, and is that back? Because can you, can you be very far back internally, but not externally? Does that... Are you, are, do you, which, is it the internal or the external that's, uh, that makes you not saved? Because you can be, you can be the, you know, the uh, older brother of the prodigal son and you never leave the house, but you can be just as far as, from God as, as the younger one. So like, what, how does it work? Like, how do you know? Now, that, that would be very serious, right? Because you'd be like, ooh, I, I don't know how backslidden I can get. I don't know how backslidden I can be. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's just see if we can get like a basic idea. That doesn't help us, does it? The Bible dictionary avoids what controversy? <laughs> they're, not, they're not even going to deal with like, what I, hey, we're just going to say to revert to sin or wrongdoing. Now, I've got here in front of me, I got here in front of me the handbook of Bible application, right? I got it at a thrift store, right? The handbook of Bible application. I got this thing for like 50 cents, right? Okay, here we go. Backslide. Forget. Give up. Turn away. That's how they describe or define it. Forget. Give up, turn away. Now, all of that does sound like Judah and Jeremiah chapter 2, does it not? They forget God. Where, why are they stopped? They stopped asking where God is, right? They turned away from God to pursue that which is vain or no profit. Remember those repeated phrases, right? Okay, so um, we know, and we definitely know they, in a sense, I don't know about give up, but they definitely turn away to, to idolatry, right? We definitely know that. Now, they've got a lot here that I would love to look at. Oh, they got, they got a lot here. But for now, we're just going to look at the text. So what's the first reference all of you guys have looking up the word backslide, backsliding? What do you have? Two, 19. Now, just so that you know, Nave's topical Bible gives us Jeremiah 2.5. I wonder why. There we go. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Now that, remember this one says, forget, give up, or turn away. All right? So we, let's just do, let's put Jeremiah 2.5 down, even though the word backsliding is not there. The reason I feel we are comfortable to include it is because when we get to Jeremiah 2, what's the first time it's used? 19, 
all of a sudden, uh, thy backsliding, uh, thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. It's spoken of they're already backsliding, right? Agreed? So, therefore, I think the, uh, the rest of the chapter describes the backsliding. So, I think Jeremiah 2.5 is a good way. So, let's do this. If we were going to describe backsliding, it would be what? To go away from God and to pursue that which is vain. To turn away from God and to turn to that which is vain. Now, do you think most people would define backsliding in that way? Like in your Christian life, how would you describe a backslider? I mean, that, that's, that's a very generic way of describing it, right? That could include a whole lot of people, okay? Right? We typically describe backsliders as someone who's gone, like, there's something very, like, they're doing something really bad, a really bad sin, like they're getting drunk, or they're, they are engaged in premarital sex, or adultery, or like something serious. This says, now, I know some translations tra- translate Jeremiah 2.5 to basically say, you, you, you turned away and started walking after idols. So, but again, an idol can be, does an idol have to be something sinful? No, no. So again, it can be very, so according to this, according to Jeremiah, a backslider is anyone who simply does what? Well, I, I, already, I already gave you the answer. Turn away from God and pursue that which is vain. That's the first thing I want you to write down. Backsliding is to turn away from God and to pursue that which is vain. What I want you to realize is that could describe a whole lot of people. You don't have to be engaged in something sinful. You're just pursuing that which is vain. And nobody can tell me exactly what that means. I got, I got uh, at least two emails, maybe more, of people going, well, I mean, is that, is that pursuing that which is, is that pursuing that which is vain? Is that pursuing that which is vain? Is that pursuing that which, like, what is pursuing? Go, if you go and get a job that's not ministry, is that pursuing that which is vain? Well, people say, well, no, that's not. But wh- wh- where is the line? Well, I do this for entertainment. Is that pursuing that which is vain? I do this for fun. This is my hobby. Is that pursuing that which is vain? Like, you see how that, like, and you say, well, you can pursue it as long as you don't put it before God. But you know how a fine line that is? Because how do you measure if you put it before God? Typically, it comes down to time, focus, money. That's such a, I mean, give me a break. I mean, we're, we would be in a perpetual state of backsliding, right? So that's, that's the first one I've got. The next one, they, uh, the uh, Knave's Topical Bible, is verses 11 through 13. Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13. What do we read? Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. All right? So, to do what? To exchange God for that which does not profit is backsliding. So, what's the first thing backsliding is? To turn away from God and pursue that which is vanity. What's the second thing backsliding is? To exchange God for that which does not profit. What's the third thing uh, backsliding is? Look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns broken 
uh, broken cisterns that can't hold no water. It's just repeating the idea. What does it mean? It means to turn from God and to dig out a well that holds no water, to do that which is... Look, if you're digging a well and it does not hold water, would everyone agree that's vanity? Would everyone agree that is of no profit unless you're just going to use that hole for something else? But if you're digging a cistern, the idea is that you're going to hold water. Right? So what is backsliding according to Jeremiah? What's the first one? To turn from God and pursue that which is vain. The second, exchange God for which is not God or that which is of no profit. And third is to basically turn from God and dig out a broken well, to dig out a well that will not hold water, which is, again, the same way of saying vain. I mean, you're getting the idea. You're getting the idea of what backsliding is, right? Okay. The next verse they give is verse 17. All right. Hast thou not procured this? Uh, or, yeah, let me read it here. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, and that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when, when he led thee by the way? It's to forsake God. It's to forsake God, which we've already included, but just write it down separately so that we just know it means to forsake God. Well, in what ways can we forsake God? We can forsake God in our thinking. We can forsake God in our speak, speak, speaking, our speech. We can forsake God in our, our desires, feelings, and actions. There's a lot of ways you can forsake God. All right, what's the next one? Verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. And thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Now, verse 19 doesn't really define what it is. In fact, I would argue verse 19 tells me why I can look at all those other things as defining backsliding because it tells me that, hey, you're already doing it. And I think it's been described in all the previous verses. Does that make sense? All right. Next, they have verse 21. Verse 21. Yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Once again, we could just refer to backsliding as a turning away. It's a turning from what God, God's purpose God's word is. All right? And just know, oh man, yeah, verse 20. There's so many problems with verse 20. We won't read, we just jumped to verse 21. So good, we don't have to, we're not going to be able to solve verse 20 tonight or probably ever. Okay, but that's all right. We won't get into that. Verse 27. If I, if I miss one that you have, let me know. Verse 27. Saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. 
Once again, what is backsliding according to this verse? Turning away from God, turning away from God, turning away from God, turning away from God. Are you getting an idea? Verse 31, I believe. Verse 31. Everybody there? O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. All right, what's, uh, what's backsliding? Now, this one, you can write down a specific thing. Refusing to come to God. Just as a refusal to come to God. Maybe a refusal to come to God in worship. Refuse to come to God in prayer. Refuse to come to God in thanksgiving. Refuse to come to God in praise. It's a refusal to come to God. Verse 32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Another thing backsliding is, is to forget God. It's just to forget God, which we saw all of this already earlier in chapter two, right? This is just using the different language to describe the same thing. All right. Now we come to which chapter? Chapter 3, which this is the, you could almost call chapter 3 the backsliding chapter. This is the backsliding chapter. This is the chapter for backsliders, right? Because it's used, what, seven times in this chapter, I think. Five, okay, between five and seven. The concept is almost through the entire chapter. So guess what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing? We're just going to look at this chapter. We're just going to walk through it. We've only got like um, 11 minutes left. So let's just walk through the chapter. Everybody ready? Okay, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's wife, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to Me, saith the Lord. All right? Now, this gets very, very strong language begins to happen here, right? I'm going to grab a different translation. I'll read it this way. All right? Yeah, I'm going to... If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him to marry another, can he ever return to her? Wouldn't such a land become totally defiled? But you, you have prostituted yourself with many partners. Can you return to me? So in a sense, backsliding is to do what? All right. To commit spiritual adultery. To commit spiritual adultery. Now that is a concept that is somewhat controversial. And it's controversial for this reason. One, does the church treat spiritual adultery like it does physical adultery? Oh, come on. No, we can all... No way. Have you ever seen anyone excommunicated for for, uh, spiritual adultery? Yes, you can hide. Right. Yeah, you can hide. Right. But I'm saying even if it's known... We go, what would spiritual adultery look like? 
That, that's, a, that's a good question. What would spiritual adultery look like? Just, just turning to anything before God. Exactly. The whole church is in a perpetual state of spiritual adulterers. The whole church is made up of spiritual adulterers at almost any given time. We constantly pursue that which is of no profit, which is vain, more than God. We give ourselves to it. We prostitute ourselves. We're guilty of it, unless you want to reduce it to nothing more than false worship of a false god. If you just reduce it to that, then we can all pat ourselves on the back and say, we, I don't do that. But then, but we, but the problem, the reason we can't do that is because everyone says idolatry is more than just worshiping a false god, and idolatry is putting anything before God. Well, if an idolatry is putting anything before God, then what is spiritual, uh, what is spiritual adultery? Turning to that and placing it above four gods. Everyone is guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. Everyone is guilty of this. This becomes a major problem, all right? Um, now, I'm going to go to the King James. Um, the, the King James says, uh, Thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Now, it's, it's interesting. The King James says, Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. And the, the Christian Standard Bible says, Can you return to me? I don't like it being saying, Can you return to me? I don't like that. That almost, almost makes it sound like you can't. I don't like that. Why the King James? How is it? How is it being worded in the King James? Yeah, yeah. The, the King James is giving a different idea, right? The Christian Standard Bible is almost like asking it as a question. Like, can you return to me? I don't like that because that almost implies that maybe you can't. The King James is stating it in what way? You keep prostituting yourselves. And then you keep returning to me. Then you go prostitute yourself and you return to me. Then you go prostitute yourself and then you return to me. In other words, you keep playing the same game over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And and the reason I think that that is somewhat an accurate description is if you go back, uh, let's see here. I think it's in chapter 2, and it was uh, close to, let's see, verse 31 and 32. Um, I can't remember. There's a part there where it makes it sound like the only time you turn, you, you, you turn back to me only when you're in trouble. You turn back to me whenever you're in trouble. Um, is it in chapter 2? Yes, look at 2.27. Saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. For thou have turned their ba- they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of trouble, will they say, arise and save us. That's why I think chapter 3, that's the right way to understand that. Is, hey, you keep prostituting yourself, but then you come back to me when? When you're in trouble. 
That, that, that's my, I, now I'm not getting into all the textual arguments because who knows, the Septuagint may have it a different way. I, I, does the NIV, I'm assuming, ask, states it more as a question? Yeah. I'm just not a fan of that because it almost seems to imply, can you come back to me? And I would assume that we would answer, you can, right? I think it's stating it that way. All right, verse 2, Jeremiah 3, 2. All right. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been, uh, thou hast not been lean with. And the ways hast thou set for them as the Arabian in the wilderness. And thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. I'm going to read it from a different translation. Look at the barren heights and see where have you not been immoral. You sat waiting for them beside the highways like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. All right, I got, this is very vivid, vivid language. This is not a, uh, a nice language used for Sunday school. All right, so I'm just going to have to be blunt. They're basically, he's saying, you've acted like a whore sitting on the side of the road looking for anyone and everyone you could commit adultery with. That's not a pleasant language. Nobody likes the language. But it's very graphic. And he's trying to be graphic. And why is he trying to be graphic? Because you're sleeping around on me with everyone. Like, look around. Find a place you haven't slept with someone at. You There, 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 everywhere. Now, once again, I don't think spiritual adultery gets much of the press. A pastor could commit spiritual adultery a thousand times and nobody is going to even question him being in the pulpit. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Now, I don't, now at the same time, you say, well, then how, what do we do with it? I don't know, but clearly God's not happy with it, okay? I can tell you that, right? Can we, are we getting a, are we getting a vibe that God may not be too happy with spiritual adultery? I think we're getting a very good idea. God is not happy with it. So how do we, how do we, how do we identify it? How do we see it? I mean, this is taking backsliding now, making us very uncomfortable because we've all probably backslid in a sense that, I mean, think about the biblical language, right? The biblical language is we're supposed to be married to whom? God, right? Christ. We're the bride. He's the bridegroom. And since Israel in this chapter two is almost spoken of as, remember when you love me like a bride? Well, now you're cheating on me. Well, how are you cheating on God tonight? How am I cheating on God tonight? I don't know. There's probably a million ways I'm cheating on God. The problem is nobody, this is one of those sins that we all would be like, man, I don't want to cheat on God, but nobody can clearly articulate what it looks like. I think what it demonstrates is, look, did Israel, let's, let's just ask a very, very, very not pleasant question. Did Israel ever stop cheating on God? No. Do you think we ever stop cheating on God? No. Meaning that once again, law does what to us? 
condemns us? And what is our only hope? In Christ. Did Christ, quote unquote, ever cheat on the Father? No. In Christ, I am faithful to the Father. That's my only hope. Now, you say, I'm not saying that means like, oh, I can just go do what I want to do. I'm not. You, whenever, I, whenever I point to the fact of imputed righteousness, everyone thinks immediately that I've turned into an antinomian and say, do what you want. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's my only hope, though, because I can sit here and pretend all day, but give me a break. Just listen to the average person in the pew. And, and I don't, and, and, and even behind the pulpit. Listen to all of us talk about life and about the, you can see what gives us the greatest excitement, what gives us the greatest pleasure. You can see what we are really into, right? Just go to any church potluck or get together. You don't hear like, oh man, I've been studying this. What do you think? Oh yeah, I was studying this. Oh man, and I heard this sermon. And oh, no, nobody's talking about their truck, their their job, their grandkids, their trip to skiing, or they hiked a mountain, or what their nap they took on Sunday, whatever people talk about, right? And, and, and you can see the excitement and the laughter and the joy about it. Now, some people will say, well, that's a beautiful thing because they're enjoying all the blessings that God had given them. But how quickly does those blessings turn into the thing you're sleeping with? And I'm not even talking anything sinful. I want to make it very clear. I'm not even talking about sinful things. We're not even getting to sinful things. Sinful things is like, wait, no, uh, uh, 300 miles ahead, take the, you know, exit to the left. Okay, we're talking about things that are not even sinful. Normal, everyday stuff that we give ourselves to, that we pursue, that we love, that we enjoy, that we desire. More than God. I've got a million of them. I got a million of them. Now I don't know what the balance is. Like, you know, when when uh, some of you may not have ever experienced this, but when you're a Christian teenager, like a brand new Christian as a teenager, teenagers at least back when I was a teenager, uh, sometimes within you talk to other Christian teenagers, that would, there was always the debate. How far can you go with your girlfriend before you've committed a sin? Like, if you're just in the back seat of the car at midnight and all you do is kiss and touch a little bit, have you committed a sin? I mean, we didn't go all the way. Yeah, see, Bobby knows the language, right? Right? Okay, that's, that's the language that was used, right? And, and it wasn't being said like... Uh, there wasn't ungodliness in that. There was really a godliness, like trying to figure out where is the line? Like when do, because in reality, we all know where the line was. You probably already commit, went all the way before you even got in the car. Because the, the sin happens in the mind and the desire. The desire is there before, maybe before you even went on the first date. Right? So, but we always have to find a, 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 a a line somewhere, right? We gotta make, we gotta give ourselves like, oh, okay, whoo, I haven't, I haven't committed that sin, but you've committed it 15 other ways. Now, I'm not saying because you committed 15 ways you should go do the other. I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say theologically before God, <laughs> we're so in sin, there's no escaping from it. 
So when it comes to spiritual adultery, being a, a spiritual, and I'm just going to be blunt, a spiritual whore, when do you become a spiritual whore? When did you commit prostitution against God? Like, when is it? Did, did you commit that today? Did you commit it yesterday? Now you can see why many in the early church left everything and joined monasteries. Remember the joke used to be in church history that there were more Christians in monasteries than there were in the cities? They all forsake, forsook the cities and joined monasteries because they're like, how am I supposed to love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul? How am I supposed to be holy as God is holy? How am I supposed to avoid this and avoid this? And the only thing I can do, and there were even those who took drastic measures on their own bodies to try to prevent sin, removing parts of their bodies. I mean, there's some strong things happened in Christianity because people were trying to figure out, how do I live this out? I think the point is, you can't. Now, I'm not justifying it. It is still something we have to figure out. I don't know where the line is. When do you commit spiritual adultery? When is it? When is it? Physical adultery, we can, we, can, we can somehow find a way to define that, right? When is spiritual adultery? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know where it is. I really don't know where the line is. I don't know. I, I can sit there and try to measure it by time. I've played that game before. I've preached that sermon a lot of times. I told everyone, take a piece of paper. How many hours do we have in a week? I can't remember what it is, 168, whatever. Okay, how many hours do we sleep per night? Okay, whatever, you know, some of you, 37, whatever it is, okay. All right, but you mark that now. Okay, now you take just the time you sleep. You don't have a lot of time left. Then you take work, personal hygiene, food. Remember, we, we always get down to, like, we've got, like, just a few hours and a week left, right? We don't have much left. And then you start going, well, how much time do you do this, 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 this? And almost without fail, everyone sit there looking at themselves going, I don't spend more time with the things of God than I do. Without fail, everyone fails that test. Everyone goes, I spend more time doing this, 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 and this, and God gets this much time. But then we'll tell ourselves, but I love God above everything else. All I need is Jesus. I don't need anything. He's the thing that satisfies. And we we talk a big game. (laughs) But it's it's such a joke. No, it's not. We love everything else. We pursue everything else. Which means we're always, like when I read this, I'm like, man. Like part of me is like, Judah, woohoo. You were out sleeping around on God. You messed up people. And then I'm like, well, you think you got it bad. Okay. You got, you got nothing on me. Because I've been sleeping around on God from the moment I've become saved. And I don't think I've ever stopped. Oh, am, I, am I not supposed to say that? Am I, am I supposed to sound more godly? Okay, I should. Okay, I've never committed this sin once in my life. God is always first. What is all of your problems, right? I, I couldn't do it that way, okay? But that would be just a lie. That'd be a lie. So we've kind of now brought backsliding to a very, that, that becomes very like a scary position because we can be backsliding simply by, 
well, sleeping around on God. And we haven't yet been able to define, we can't even really define what it means to pursue that which is vain. We can't even really define what it means to pursue that which is without profit. <laughs> that would seem to be anything, exactly. Right, and which I would, I would be in trouble. I would be in trouble. All right, we didn't get far in the backsliding thing. I was going to try to finish it all tonight, but that's okay. It got us to the thing that we want us to get to. Chapter three, you can see, is a, whew, that's a chapter. All right, let's stop. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, the only thing I can say tonight is I'm a backslider. I've always been a backslider, and I always will be. I, all I know is I've committed spiritual adultery over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I cannot promise you that it's going to stop anytime soon. But I do know this. I'm willing to acknowledge that and know that my only hope is in the one who never committed any sin. And that is in your son. Without him and his righteousness, I am doomed. I am condemned without hope in him. I can stand in perfect holiness and righteousness and be accepted because of the righteousness imputed to me. That is our only hope. I hope that does not allow us to excuse our sin, but just make us realize that without Christ, we are condemned. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,